conflict, but a war. Whatever is happening in Ukraine is influencing every single country. We become refugees not from our will. This virus changed not only my life, but the life of the whole Ukraine. Welcome to Trumanitarian. I'm Lars Peter Nissen. And I'm Julia Chikolba. Julia, this is the fourth and last episode we have in our little Ukraine series. It's been great having these discussions with you every Sunday morning, trying to figure out what's up and down in humanitarian action in Ukraine. I hope you have enjoyed it as well. I think I learned quite a lot um, of different perspectives because we had the whole variety of actors, right? We had the government, we had national NGOs, we had the individual volunteers, but um, I learned. What about you? Yeah, I feel like I have deepened my understanding of, of the situation in Ukraine. And overall, I'm just extremely pleased with our collaboration. With one little exception, Julia. I had the most brilliant title for episode four. It was probably the best title I've ever come up with for a humanitarian episode. It was Sisyphus Redux, and you axed it. I had five minutes explanation ready around rolling rocks up hills and then rolling down, and, and you just told me that doesn't fly. And so I am a bit disappointed. Well, that's your opportunity to explain your thinking behind this episode. But at the same time, you can use it for another episode of Trumanitarian, maybe... We are saving it for better. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it in my back pocket. And we, we found a really good alternative. When we talked through the sort of journey we've been on, two dimensions stood out, I think, to us. On one side, we have had a lot of conversations around the purpose of humanitarian aid. Why do we do this? What is important? The humanitarian principles, positioning humanitarian actors. And on the other hand, we have had a whole bunch of conversations, maybe even more conversations, actually, around power, the relationship between international and local actors, between government and civil society. And so the title we agreed on was Purpose and Power, and I'm actually really happy with that. I mean, it was also your suggestion, uh, but I think it brings up everything very nicely together. Uh, because, like, yes, purpose is important, and we covered it quite a lot uh, in the first episode, right? Humanitarian principles where we fearlessly disagree on neutrality, but that's okay, let's agree to disagree. Um, and, and, and then when we were discussing later, like, I really like your definition of localization is basically about shifting the power and shifting the power balance. And it was a lot uh, about this lack of shifting. Yeah, that also was what stood out. The, for me, in episode two, it was a gap between the international humanitarian technocracy, if you want, and the very organic all of society response from Ukraine, where almost every Ukrainian somehow is involved in responding to the crisis, to the to the war. Yeah, and I think in second episode, uh, this gap was very, very evident, and um, it was explained by Louis Sider, like very old school, many, many years experience humanitarian from a big aid, big system who came to Ukraine and tried to connect this organic response to, to the system, to the big aid system, but also to money, which is very important, right? Uh, and failed to do that. And not because he did something wrong, but because the system is not 
quite fit for purpose. That was a really good conversation. But I also liked the third episode we did, which was around government-civil society relations. And I thought that both from civil society and government, we had really strong representatives who clearly showed us both a government committed to protecting and defending its country and its citizens, and a civil society very aware of how to hold a government accountable, but also how to step in and support a government when it is under pressure as it is now under attack from Russia. It was also a conversation that really reminded me of the importance of keeping a distance to the government, because it's clear to me how you very easily can end up in a situation with a, a conflict between humanitarian actors and the government, especially in Russian-controlled territory. I think it was very interesting to hear both perspectives, but also I think it's very important for the big aid to come to the country with open eyes and basically to see and recognize and acknowledge the role of government as a, as a first primary responder to disaster um, and seek not only the areas where uh, we have to keep our mandate as humanitarians and stay aside, but also where we can collaborate, contribute and actually reinforce each other. Speaking about distance, I think for the fourth episode, we actually lined up a very interesting guests who would allow us to step back from uh, from academia guests, from humanitarian action guests, from big aid, small aid, government, and, and actually give us a bit different perspective on what is happening in Ukraine. Do you want to introduce uh, Eva Vilichka and Fred Larsen? As they say, where you stand depends on where you sit. Fred runs an NGO resource center that focuses on strengthening Ukrainian civil society to perform its role. And Eva works with ACAPS, where I also work, on simply providing analysis for humanitarian actors, shaping the humanitarian narrative, making sure that we have a, a robust evidence-based storyline to underpin our humanitarian action. So I hope that will give us a complementary perspective on humanitarian action in Ukraine. And I would suggest starting with Fred, and uh, let's, let's listen what he has to say. I would like to start perhaps now, uh, and just to recognize that we have never had more um, activists, volunteers, and humanitarians within the Ukrainian civil society. Um, and that's quite, un uh, that's a quite an important point. And that is an, uh, and I think we should do everything we can to support and to um, encourage this new influx of new organizations and volunteer groups because these will be the ones who actually will be responsible for the rebuilding of Ukraine. These are the same people now who are engaging in NGOs who will be looking out for the democracy in Ukraine and the strength of democracy. They will be the same people who will be fighting corruption. And they will be, they will be the same people who, who ensure that the rebuilding of Ukraine is, is both effective and efficient. So going back a year, I mean, it's not... It was not a surprise to me that Ukrainian civil society was so effective in the first phase. There's tremendous, tremendous power in the Ukrainian civil society, tremendous capacity as well. And if you look back a year, when the first, second and third responders came from Ukrainian civil society, I mean, that was long before we saw any tents or 
flags with branded logos in Ukraine. I really like what Fred actually said to us because it also echoes quite a lot uh, our last episode guest, Yulia, when she was talking about their civil society role, what they've been doing for years, challenging the government, fighting for women's rights, for example. And at the same time, when it has been needed, they jumped into assistance, they jumped into the humanitarian aid because that was the most important. And it's very interesting to me, like this dynamic, because the local civil society ultimately acts in the interest of people. And if they see the interest of people is supporting government, in this case, they would support the government, align with them to win the war and to assist those who are falling through the cracks or government is unable to assist. And at the same time, the moment uh, they want to do something else, like in interest of people, which will be challenging the government on uh, women's rights, challenging the government on corruption, uh, and they, they just jump back to their civil society role. Yes, it also really stood out to me the long-term perspective in what he's saying, that these are the same institutions that will help keep Ukraine on track after the war, that will help fight corruption, that will help defend democracy. And that's a really powerful way to think about civil society. And I was thinking it's important to recognize just how big a difference these organizations are making in the, the concrete assistance they're given to people. But at the same time, not to reduce them to just doing service delivery. There's a far broader role in terms of strengthening Ukraine as a society here. It's not just about delivering food packages, even though that's incredibly important as well. And uh, I was thinking now that probably every single uh, dollar invested in the organizations now and like make, making sure that they do develop their capacities, that they do continue like enhancing skills and uh, and the structures and institutions, right? It would actually benefit Ukraine long term as well. And of course, what's interesting is that if you listen to the discourse of the humanitarian sector overall, localization is one of the issues we have spoken most about since the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016. We Everything is localization, right? And one of the things that was interesting in our conversation with Eva was that she spoke about how localization actually means different things to different institutions or to different people. And I think we should just listen to a clip where she describes these differences. We are actually doing a research project on that and we've talked to close to 50 different uh, organizations including uh, international coordination mechanisms, um, UN agencies, INGOs, cluster representatives, and uh, national and local NGOs in Ukraine, asking them about their perception of what localization is, their challenges, best practices, um, many uncomfortable questions about fundraising and how funds are being distributed. And uh, the main finding from that uh, that I have is no two agencies, organizations, types of responders answered the question of what localization is or should be in Ukraine in the same way. So for me, the clear gap that we have is that there is simple, simply no understanding of what it means to, to localize humanitarian response. When, when you talk to UN, they, uh, they are closest to grant burden commitments and thinking that it's coordinating with local partners. When you talk to INGOs, it's, uh, it's more about how we can 
include them in, uh, in our programs, how we can fund them and how we can make our processes easier for them to, to work with us. And for, uh, for local uh, organizations, localization is very often considered just delivering aid on local level, on Hromada level, and has nothing to do with international responders. Um, so, inter uh, so interestingly, it, there, is very, there are huge disparities in a way that uh, different levels of response, not even big aid, little aid, international, local, but within international response, there, there are different challenges being discussed by the UN, by INGOs, and completely different, completely different uh, attitudes as well. I think it's very interesting to see how different organizations have different understanding of localization. But uh, Lars Petter, what is localization for you? For me, the overriding concern when we talk about localization is to shift power. If we're not shifting power, I don't know what we're talking about. So that, that's what it means to me. Now, power can be many different things. It's obviously money. And we need to shift control of money to local actors, that's clear. But it's about much more than that as well. It's about the relation between international staff coming in, often with a very shallow understanding of a specific context. It's about the narrative. It's about what is this crisis actually about? Are you telling me what my story is? Or are you allowing me to tell my own story? That's a lot of power there as well. And so that, that's how I think about it. it it's, I, I try to look at power relations, and if I don't see a shift, I don't think we are localizing. I agree with the power part specifically, and I think in Ukraine we are kind of moving in the right direction, probably way better than in many other contexts. At the same time, it's clearly not enough, right? And uh, let's recall this uh, letter from civil societies that we were discussing before, and uh, when local civil societies basically asking, give us back our voice, give us back our story, give us back our right to speak about uh, what's happening to us, basically. And I think um, it's, on the one hand, it's very problematic uh, because, yes, you're right, it's a lot of humanitarians who came into the country. But at the same time, we have to remember that the first, second and third responders were national civil society. And then then it's when everyone else came, only after mass. And um, we, we just have to keep in mind that it's clearly not enough what we are doing. I agree with that. But at the same time, I also want to say that I think that there has been a, a true shift in the discourse. I think Ukrainian civil society has been quite successful in, in, in sort of launching a counter-narrative to the one from international humanitarian aid. The letter you mentioned, if not now, then when, is, is one example of that. If you look at the different webinars that have been held around how is it, how is it going with humanitarian action, it's no secret that we have a problem. And I think it's no secret that that we haven't connected in a good way with, with Ukrainian civil society, especially in the beginning. And so I think that's actually a win for Ukraine. In terms of narrative, probably we're getting there. But uh, if we are successful, I, I will ask the horrible question, where, where is the money are going, right? And the, and the percentage of money going to local NGOs is clearly not even close to be enough. No, I agree with you. I don't think we've seen that shift in terms of, of uh, financing really primarily going to, to local actors. And I thought that Fred had a really interesting point around why that may be, why the system does not seem to be engineered 
to work with local actors. And I'd, I'd like to just play that now. The cluster system, as far as I'm informed at least, was created through, through um, problems uh, with the humanitarian assistance in Darfur in 2004. Yeah, yes, and the tsunami. Yeah, and, and then first implemented in, in Pakistan in 2005. But that was a complete, and that was seen as necessary because there was no strong state. There was no strong uh, humanitarian coordination within, within, the, within the state. There was not necessarily a, a, a civil society which can compare to the strength of the Ukrainian civil society. I mean, Ukrainian civil society has always been a key agent of change in, in everything in Ukrainian society. So you can imagine what would have happened if, if the cluster system first would, would uh, have been created in Ukraine instead of, of uh, in a different country, in a different context. Um, I think we would, have a different, we would have a different system today because the initial input into the system would have been completely different. And we would have had a more, more um, a system more aligned with localization efforts, for example, recognizing that civil society, uh, national civil society have and, and should play a significant part in the response, as well as national authorities. So I think, and from, from, from that time, 2004, 2005, I mean, superstructures has been developed and there's a lot of vested interests in this. So it is difficult to, to um, change the systems which are in place. But I think reform is absolutely, absolutely necessary. Because if we cannot manage a national-led response in Ukraine, I think that, is, that would actually... Uh, uh, be, be be very very negative uh, for for the future of of, uh, of humanitarian response overall and localization agenda in particular, because this is the country where it should happen, because it has all the, all the uh, prerequisites for for this. It's a very interesting perspective Fred brings to the conversation, but I'm not sure I agree with him. I agree with him that the system is not working as it should, but I don't necessarily think that it's because it was it was designed for a different context. Now, both the Fuhr and the Indian Ocean tsunami were drivers for changing the humanitarian system because there were big problems in those two operations. But if you look at the context, they were very different. The Fuhr, you had a government that basically tried to kill off a good chunk of its own population. And in the tsunami, you had a bunch of often middle-income countries with, with strong governments who were temporarily overwhelmed by a horrible, horrible natural disasters that killed hundreds of thousands of people and wiped out the economy. Now, those two are very different in between themselves. And so I'm not sure that the problem was it was designed for the wrong context. And, you know, I actually have a very simple mind. And when I look at the behavior of the humanitarian system, I see two things. I see a bunch of actors that have been incentivized to, on one side, maximize turnover, and on the other hand, minimize risk. So what that means is they will position themselves to get as much money as they can, 
And once they have that money, they will control the way that money is spent as tightly as possible to minimize the risk that they have to pay back some of that money. And if you listen to Rasmus, for example, that we had in episode two, the Secretary General of Care Denmark, that's actually exactly what he said. I'm not super sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure I'm qualified to speak a lot about the humanitarian coordination system. Uh, and clearly not Darfur, not Tsunami. I don't know much about that. But at the same time, like what makes me think uh, for Ukraine specifically, I'm not sure that humanitarian coordination system is actually um, the best coordination mechanism that we have. Because in Ukraine, with a functioning government, in Ukraine, with a very strong civil society, we still have this slightly alien um, structures where everyone is uh, voluntarily mandated to coordinate, but at the same time, we ignore the whole existence of uh, national laws. We ignore the whole existence of the government coordination structures. We, we, we just simply don't count them in. Yeah, it's a very introvert system, in a sense. It's, it's, very, it's an echo chamber where it's designed to regulate interaction between the different humanitarian actors rather than proactively reaching out and engaging and adapting to the context we're in. And I think Ukraine is actually a very good opportunity for humanitarian sector to, um, you know, to open minds and hearts and actually engage with a local society, with uh, with a local governance structures, with uh, local organizations, but also at the same time with a private sector, right? We, we, we do have a lot of uh, humanitarian assistance coming through like different philanthropies and charities. I think this is more of an opportunity for us to learn because what we have right now, the cluster system, in Ukraine clearly is not fit for purpose because it's supposed to coordinate, but it only coordinates itself. And Fred actually made a really good point around how national NGOs engage with the coordination system. Let's just listen to that clip now. I mean, we have, of course, extremely strong national NGOs who, who, who participate in the system and have extremely strong voices. But it's important to be heard I mean, we have all these commitments and we have all these policies and we have write all these papers all the time. But what is the actual change? So far, not so, so far, not much. Doesn't matter if you're not actually listened to. It doesn't matter how loud you scream or how strong you are. Because if some, if there is, a, if if there is not a real interest. For change, if we're so used to the system that we're working within, and we're so comfortable with our system because we know how it works, whoever this organization we are, then we not, and we get a good salary, and yeah. So, what is my carrot for change? I found it really interesting what Fred said about um, being heard. So the national society doesn't really feel like it's being heard and national actors don't really feel as they were heard. And maybe we as a big system do not really listen carefully enough. I think it's very much echoing what the national society's feedback was on a, on a cluster meeting, for example, right? When the, when all of these big NGOs with a huge amount of funding come to the cluster meeting and report these large numbers of assisted peoples, 
But probably these small numbers of small stories probably of this local NGO are actually making more difference than these large numbers where we are kind of lost in the statistics instead of instead of helping people. But um, and they feel neglected. They feel um, they, they feel as as they don't have anything of value while they are value, and we probably are not giving them enough uh, reassurance that they are there for a reason. Yeah, I think when we don't listen, it's because we don't have to. And when you're under pressure and you're busy and you have to send reports home to your headquarter and you've been told make sure we look good out there, then you don't necessarily listen to that that little organization in the corner that you never heard about. Do you think we are kind of lost in uh, everyday business, in everyday struggle, that we keep forgetting the, the whole purpose? I think this is, uh, I mean, to, to go back to what we mentioned at the beginning, power and purpose, coordination really is a, is a zero-sum game. It's about cutting the cake and deciding who gets what. It's a power game between the big actors. And in that logic, a small national NGO that you've never heard about and that doesn't have a big budget doesn't count a lot. So why should I listen to you when I'm here busy positioning myself in this cluster meeting so that I can do some more good? I think it actually aligns a lot with uh, what is Eva about to say us about the barriers to localization and, and how important it is to change our minds first before going any, any further. So maybe let's listen to Eva. I think the main barrier is first mental so we do not appreciate local responders enough and we do not appreciate their expertise enough or international actors do not appreciate their expertise enough. And, and the second is, is formal barrier. So the formal requirements to apply for funding, formal requirements to coordinate, formal requirements to, to report activities are so complicated and the bureaucracy level is so high that it's complicated even for international actors to follow all of those, uh, all, all of those formalities. And for most of the smaller level local Ukrainian partners and definitely for most of the informal volunteer networks, those, uh, those are completely prohibitive uh, for them joining the formal structures. They don't have enough time, they don't have enough structures to do it, but the answer to that is not they need to build more structures and they need to build more capacity. The answer would be more that the, the structure needs to adapt to internalize their expertise. Because if we, if we don't do that, it's, it's the whole structure that is going to lose out. But it's a very difficult mental and formal change to go through. What this makes me think of is uh, we talk a lot about capacity, but we always talk about it in the frame of local actors not having the capacity to pass a due diligence or not having adequate whatever system. We don't talk about it in the sense of the international humanitarian community having ears to actually be able to hear what their partners are saying to them. And it's just so depressing, this statement, that even when you have a strong voice, if nobody listens to you, then, then what changes? And it, it so resonates with, with my experience of, for example, working in Zimbabwe with some extremely strong 
national actors and going into the international coordination fora and seeing how diminished they were by that. And these were the guys doing the work. Just like you in Ukraine today, I'm sure, see all the people doing the work being diminished when they step into this coordination forum, which was actually created to enable what they do. Because the coordination forum is not enabler anymore, I would say. And, uh, you know, I was also thinking, well, <laughs> while you were talking, I was thinking, um, but like basically... Yes, it is important to be heard, but also the national actors are often very busy doing actual work. And after going to this cluster meeting once, twice, and we've been to cluster meetings, we know how it looks like. It's not the most, normally, it's not the most productive use of time. And the national organizations honestly just prefer to, to, to stay with their people, with the people that they're assisting, they're receiving directly, direct feedback from the communities. It's not that you're, you know, sitting behind the tables and doing something on your laptop and planning, but they receive, like, uh, immediate feedback from the communities and they don't really want or find it important to waste their time and effort to position themselves. And speaking about Eva... Uh, part, I really like how she broke down uh, the barriers into kind of mental and formal. And when we are talking about reform, humanitarian reform, we constantly talk about the kind of formal part of it only. So the formal change, the change of shape, but not really nothing about mental. <laughs> we, don't really, we don't really do it enough because it's something that is not as visible. No, I think you're absolutely right. We speak the institutional language. We don't talk about trust, we don't talk about culture, we don't talk about opening spaces for dialogue, we talk about institutional design, basically. And, and kind of, when we are talking about stepping back from the humanitarian aid, when we are talking about the governments like unwilling to do something or something like is going wrong in the political system, we have this very important component, like a political will for the change. And whether humanitarian sector has this will for the change, I don't know. Because for formal change, maybe. For mentally change and step back and take less money and uh, distribute assistance in another way and probably leave uh, nice and fancy offices in Geneva for half of the people who are working there and just distribute this money to local actors in a conflict-affected countries, I'm not convinced that we are ready for that. No, that somehow is the key question, isn't it? And, you know, there was a report some years ago that was called uh, Time to Let Go. And it was a great report. It was ODI that, that did it. It really described very accurately the issues we face with the, the power relations in the sector. It, it was a great report, apart from the title. It shouldn't have been called Time to Let Go. It should have been called This Will Now Be Taken Away From You. Because I have never heard about incumbents about the people in power just saying oh yeah right let's let's uh, let's let go of power that's not how the world works i mean you always find a way of justifying that of course you are incredibly useful and and the the, the value you add to the system cannot be done without and you know one of the top uh, female danish politicians once said that we will have equality between men and women in the workplace when we have as many mediocre female managers as we have mediocre male managers. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, right? It's, it's, it's somehow, it's a bit the same here. 
we we see the shortcomings of the local access also clearly because they can't do this and this and that, but we massively overlook just how incompetent part of our own system is. Because the system was created and is maintained by people. And yes, I agree about hundreds of committing people. I also know them a lot and I do appreciate them and their work. But we should we should have a very open eyes about hundreds of those who are less committed and and those who just want to get their paycheck and 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 do something probably good for humanity in general. And uh, we have to acknowledge both sides of the story. And I think the barriers for the change that Eva mentioned, mental and formal, are both valid um, for Ukraine, but for humanitarian system as a whole. All right, Julia. Last episode, power and purpose. We've listened to Fred. We've listened to Eva. Where do we... How do we land the ship? How do we end off this little series on Ukraine? What, what, where do we go from here? Embarking on this journey with you, I, I would love to have answers and very clear, you know, recipes and what to do and what not to do. But um, I am living with more questions and answers for myself even. Yeah, it's difficult when it is as complex as what we're talking about here to really hammer it out in a few points. But I, I'd like to say a couple of things that, that stand out for me. And I'd actually like to begin with you and me. We've never met each other in, in person. We, uh, we found each other on the internet, and then we just started this process. And for me, that, that has been an integral part of this journey to get to know and trust you and to be able to discuss what is a very painful situation for your country with you and still challenge you and listen to you and try to empathize and understand your perspective and that that has been probably for me the most uh, my favorite part of this whole thing i really enjoyed the journey with you as well because like i reflected on my own positions more than than ever before actually and i knew that i have my perspective and i knew that there are other perspectives and uh, it was be very beneficial not to you know, have my and hostile uh, perspectives, but it was nice to to give more nuances to to my picture of my own country conflict. And if we then look at what is it concretely we we've seen within this dialogue we've had, I think I actually think the the, the title we landed on for this episode uh, is is the core, right? There is a lot around power. It's obvious that when we talk about decolonizing or localizing, whatever you want to call it, that we are getting the discourse, but we're not really seeing the action yet. Right? And several people have said something along the lines of, if we can't do it in Ukraine, tell me where we can do it. Probably, yes. And uh, I think it would be very interesting to look into the dynamic in Ukraine, right? It's one year on, and... Uh, I think it's kind of shifting too slow, but still shifting in the right direction, but uh, clearly not fast enough. But we don't know what's going to happen on year five, six, when money uh, would not be as abundant as they are now. Then the other big thing, of course, is this business about purpose, about how do you position the humanitarian project in a war where you have many different interests, you have the military interests, uh, dominating everything. You have reconstruction, uh, development, uh, stabilization, and then you have this little humanitarian island. Where does it fit? 
right? And I think in particular in a situation where all of the donor countries, the big donor countries to the humanitarian sector are closely aligned with the Ukrainian government in this conflict, I think that that reframes that challenge of independence, of neutrality in in, in a new way. I mean, neutrality was a cornerstone and it was kind of touched upon by almost every guest that we had here. And not only the first episode when we were kind of specifically focused on. Um, I'm also thinking that um, we have to get back to the people's, the interest of people we serve, right? The interest of people, yes, we do, we do what, what we do, we do ultimately in the interest of of citizens, of, of people of, who live in Ukraine, who suffer through this conflict. And it's very important for us, uh, you know, to, on the one hand, still remain uh, and keep our mandate of what we do, keep it humanitarian. But on the other hand, not to tell these people, you know, like giving this, getting this NFI kit is your interest and uh, winning the war is not your interest. So um, we, we, we have to be very careful in uh, our own standing, but also not to not to you know overcome and not to not to look at the people through our own lens. I couldn't have said it better, Julia. I think that was the perfect ending to this series. Thank you so much for these conversations. I've enjoyed it thoroughly, and I look forward to our future collaboration. Thank you so much, Lars Peter. I learned a lot, and thank you, Trumanitarian, for having me for these four episodes. Um, I'm I'm glad we finished them, but I'm so I'm also very sad that we did. So um, see you hopefully in Ukraine one day. This episode was produced with support from Care Denmark. Our producer is Dennis Kelsen, researched by Caroline Thorsen, and our sound engineer is Agustin Libertorte. If you like the show, let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you really, really like the show, why don't you give us a donation through our website, truemanitarian.org, where we have a PayPal link.